Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I catch up with Peter Linneman, CEO and founder of Linneman Associates, to discuss how the pandemic has impacted all sectors of real estate since he and I last spoke in April 2020. Dr. Linneman also shares thoughts on how the economic response to COVID-19 has impacted the real estate industry at a macro level. Enjoy the conversation. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining again. I feel like it was a very, it was actually a very short time ago that we last spoke, but it feels like a couple years. Um, it's like a lifetime. <laughs> feels like a lifetime. Yeah, I know. Um, well, and thank you so much for your insights the last time, just about you know how the real estate industry was looking at this, you know, this impending crisis with all of this, all of this unknown information. And now, I guess to a greater extent, more has revealed itself. And so, what I wanted to do is just get your perspective, almost subsector by subsector, of like how has what do we know that we didn't know? Okay. Six months ago. Um, Makes sense. Happy to do it. So at a macro level, before going into any sectors, how has COVID, how has the economic response, the stimulus, and obviously the kind of very imminent, we're recording this three days before, you know, one of the most politically and economically charged elections in our lifetimes, how has all of that at a macro level affected the real estate industry? Uh... The good news is the world, the the economy did not fall apart. The CARES package was probably the least political government spending in my lifetime, 69 years. And by political, I don't mean Democrat, Republican. I mean, I'm chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. There are lots of goodies for me or Europe, you're a powerful and you're up for election. They really... They didn't do it perfectly, nobody could do it perfectly, but it was economically driven, and not surprisingly given it was economically driven, it did economic good. Um, in a way, what we did was borrow $2 trillion from the future, and I've calculated that the present value of the US economy, kind of a clever exercise if you think about it, just what's the present value of the US economy? It's probably 800 trillion, you know, if you think about the economy growing forever and then discounting it, we took $2 trillion from the future to, to help us survive. That makes a lot of sense if we did it well. This next $2 trillion, whenever they do it, is going to be a bit more political if you look at it. And again, I don't mean Democrat, Republican. I mean the spending is politically targeted. Um, uh, what do you mean by that, Peter, when you say it's politically? Well, I'll give you the, the most trivial example historically. Um, uh, my district gets the military appropriation for my base because I hold a powerful position in Congress. I'm just taking that as a classic example of politically driven or by the way, even infrastructure, of all the bridges in the country, 
that need to be built or repaired, mine gets built because I'm chairman of the appropriation committee or senior member or, 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 right? That is, they didn't go through all the bridges and say which one has the biggest economic impact, right? They went through and said which one um, gets the biggest political impact, right? And, and those are, look, politicians do political decisions. So it's not surprising that to the extent we spend economically focused, it does a lot more good than when we spend politically focused. My gut is the next one will be less economic, more political, but still economic. There'll be another next year of another couple of trillion. It will be even less economically focused and more politically focused. And each time it will do less good. That is to say, we won't be as much getting our money's worth. And do you think that there, when you think about that political overlay, right, on, on top of kind of borrowing forward against the U.S. economy, yeah. are there certain sectors of the real estate industry that you think are net beneficiaries or net losers in that political tradecraft? Um, not Obviously, so far, I think you mentioned the election. Post-election is going to be the real issue there. Um, will there be, quote, revenge taken on the real estate industry, um, uh, which is possible, depending on what happens in Congress and so forth? Um, I think it's too soon to say, actually. Uh, but so far, not terribly. So far, keeping the economy together benefits all real estate. Right. And when you think back to what could have happened if there had been mass unemployment with no support, and when you think what could have happened if 10 times the number of firms went out of business to rental payments in office buildings, et cetera, et cetera. The Fed has done a terrific job they put in a lot of liquidity and they've told banks to forbear, not just forbear on real estate guys, by the way, forbear on their tenants. Remember, our, our buildings are full of people who have borrowed from banks and they're forbearing on them, which allows them to stay alive, right? Which allows, so, so far it's been remarkable. And I think people, you, you know, this, the unintentionally stupidest question I get asked is, can we afford it? Of course, of course. I mean, 800 trillion, by the way, suppose I'm wrong, it's only 600 trillion present value of the US economy. Can we afford two, four, six trillion? Of course. Your, your point being, we didn't lever up that much to save the We people. didn't lever up if, that much. If, that, if that's what it in fact is or was. Um, Let me give you a remarkable and by the way, I knew these numbers, but since we last talked, I've really been ruminating on them. Um, the total outstanding federal budget uh, debt is about uh, $23 trillion, okay? A lot of money, $23 trillion. That's not counting the $5 trillion that the government owes itself, right? That's intercompany debt, so that doesn't count. So about $23 trillion. Give you two benchmarks. I gave you one, uh, 23 trillion versus a present value of the U.S. economy of 800 
trillion? I mean, come on. Of course we could afford it. Question is, are we getting value, right? Second is, um, we have about 110 trillion in household wealth, okay, 110 trillion, which means we could pay off all the debt immediately, right? Just we go to our bank accounts, so to speak. Now, you're, we'd have to tax to do that, but we could go to our bank accounts, pay down all the federal debt to zero, and still have like 90 trillion in yeah. household wealth, right? So, of course, we could. By the way, um, another way to say it is GDP is around 21 trillion. That means if we took all the income we produce in our society for the next five quarters, we could retire all of our federal debt. That's kind of remarkable when you think about it. Now, we're not going to do any of those things. But when you think about it, that's all, right? That's all. And when you think about that, uh, even if we do 800, excuse me, 8 trillion of bailout money and stimulus, whatever you want to call it, the interest charge on that's like 100 billion a year. The federal budget last year was, the federal budget last year was, uh, uh, um, what was it, 4.3 trillion, right? 4.3 versus 4.4, you couldn't tell, right? You just couldn't tell. So we can afford it. Here's the question. Here's the real question. Not can we afford it, is are you going to pay for it or am I going to pay for it? Right. That's the question. So what you can imagine is this big room, and we have plenty of resources. And then we look around the room and say, I want you to pay it. And you say, nope, I want you to pay it. And the discussion is about who pays it. That's a, that's a hard discussion, but we can afford it. And, and do you think that there's a, again, a, like there's a political overlay on top of that and that there's almost this orthogonal overlay, which is geographic, right? So what's happening in terms of, you know, th this demographic reshuffling that I think everyone is now aware is afoot, right? That there is a movement from New York and California into um, states like Texas, states like Florida. As that happens, it, at least correct me if this logic is, is wrong in my mind, it feels like that is the equivalent at a state level potentially of a run on a bank, right? Because it's not that your liability base is changing when a bunch of affluent mobile people leave a given state. They just simply don't pay taxes in that state anymore. And so you have less income to cover the same cost. Do you think that we are entering an era where at a state level, states are going to be going to the federal government and this who pays, do I pay or do you pay? Is Texas bailing out Florida by virtue of, you know, th indirectly through the federal government? Is that an era we're entering of kind of like state by state, fiscal, political, fist fighting, right? And not just state by state, city by city. Right. Right. City versus suburbs. Uh, so, and I think the answer is, yeah, we're probably looking at about five years of serious that. And by the way, you can imagine that it's not hard to envision that conversation. One is, gee, you were already spending too much. 
this is what's been going on in the EU for years, right? You were already spending too much, and now you come back and call, cry poverty. And on the other hand is, yes, but if you don't, there's fiscal disaster. And then the response is, you should have thought of that five years ago, right? And that's the back and forth. And there is a, and I use in quotes, a moralistic overlay, right, to it of you were profligate and such. What we do see, you know, I, I pointed out that the federal level has a tap on the U.S. A state or city only has on their citizenry, and the citizens can move to avoid their burden. Right. So, by the way, how many people are going to leave the United States to avoid their burden associated with federal borrowing? Eight people? I mean, and even if you leave, you can say, well, some high wealth people do. You know, the tax law is if you leave, you have to pay an inheritance tax like you died. Right. So you don't leave it so easily, right? So at the federal level, there's always a couple people yeah. who will leave. And, I'm but not really. within, the kind of reshuffling within. That's the problem. And that's why state and local governments have to have balanced budget requirements. Right. Because otherwise we spend like hell and then we move to Texas when it's time to pay, right? Yeah. Or we move to Nevada when it's time to pay. And you're right. This is going to be an ugly five years of, I don't know what to, it is. Who's going to pay? Who's, who's, and, yeah. um, it's city by city. And what's so interesting is that at the same time, right, the, all this spending and kind of the public health response and this election cycle have occurred. It's also this moment in time where so many millions of knowledge workers across the country all instantaneously realized that they could do their jobs from almost anywhere that has. Well, and I think that's one of the more, you know, people have talked about, will people work from home? I'm not a big believer you can do it. I can. You're highly disciplined. You're highly scheduled. You're highly self-driven. I'm not saying 100%, right? But not surprisingly, you can work pretty effectively at home. You were already doing it from the road, if you think about it in many ways. And But what about the rank and file person who is not highly disciplined, doesn't have a great work environment, doesn't have a, a rigid schedule, their productivity is probably down 25, 30%. Now for a short term, we can all look the other way. We can't look the other way forever. We just can't look the other way forever. However, the kind of people that you're talking about, why don't they create a pod in Nashville or, you know, wherever? And, um, uh, why do I have to pay the prices to live in Silicon Valley? You know, I, I was having a conversation with Richard Florida, the, the professor on, on exactly this and, you know, his notion of this emerging mobile class and, and that, you know, it was already mobile pre-COVID. Now it's acutely mobile. And I agree with you. There's a stratification between... Huge. As, as, you, as you called, rank and file and say the... Um, 
the kind of the the, the very mobile knowledge worker, right? That that that, that is disciplined has a place. And that's right. They not only have to be knowledge worker, they have to be a disciplined individual, or else a very highly scheduled. Where you tell them at ten o'clock you got to be on this call, and eleven o'clock you be. On. That's. But if they're not highly disciplined or highly scheduled, even if they're very smart, it's a problem. So, so, so how does that, maybe I'll, I'll first ask you on cities and then I want to go into subsectors. but yeah. so which, if you were to be very specific, which cities do you think are the net winners and the net losers? And just to kind of lead the witness a little bit, I, I just finished a conversation last night where someone was saying Miami, they think is going to have a, is going to be, you know, the next decades Florence of, of the United States. And San Francisco is our generation's Detroit, right? It's a very kind of extreme view. Do you think that's the case? Like, where, where do you think we're headed? Okay, so here's, here's where I see, and the wild card is really the next month. Um, I think there's a very high chance of a lot of violence, no matter who wins the election. Um, I hope I'm wrong. I desperately hope I'm wrong, right? Uh, I feel like the weatherman, where you see the storm coming and you say, but I hope it's not going to hit. There's an alternative path and so forth. But um, if I knew if there was post-election violence and where it is big, I could definitively answer. Because people don't want to be where buildings are being burned down, storefronts are being done, looting's occurring, etc. Um, and that's a big wild card post-election, or even the lead-up to the election. In Philadelphia, we've had some lo serious looting. In fact, in our building downstairs, they looted the pharmacy. Um, so I think I would say any place that has a second round or a third round of serious violence it's going to suffer. And they're going to suffer not forever, but for three to five, seven years. Um, Portland being kind of the poster child that way, you don't see a lot of people calling you up saying, I want to open a business in Portland, right? You just don't see that. None of my clients say I need to invest there, right? You're not sending people out saying there's got to be great opportunities in Portland. So that's one. New York, um, Chicago, Philadelphia, um, have uh, Boston, DC could be. Those cities have the biggest problem because they have the most vibrant urban course. And if there is not just the fiscal problems you're talking about, right, which are going to happen anyway, that's the economy that creates the fiscal problems. If on top of that you have this why do I want to live there? All the stores are closed. All the they're burned out. They're going to be burned out for three years, etc. Those are the most vulnerable. The least vulnerable are the places that don't have much there to start with, mm -hmm. in an odd way, right? I mean, Meaning if you never had that, a job, that, kind of, that that cosmopolitan urban yeah. streetscape, like what makes New York New York, is I would argue a bit different than what makes LA LA. Right, they they are Absolutely. they are different cities, and I guess what you're saying is there's there's more durability to the 
I don't know, just the, the, the how spread out and the breadth of that. You got Houston has better durability right. than New York in this sense, right? If you never had a jump shot, you can't lose it as you age, right? I mean, if you could never dunk a basketball as you age, you didn't lose the ability to dunk a basketball. New York could dunk a basketball, right? Uh, Chicago could dunk a basketball. So that's the spirit of it in a way, right? And I do, and I think it really hinges on what happens post-election violence-wise. And it's a wild card. I, I certainly don't know, but come on, we know every police force in the country is trying to figure out what's going to happen and they're all on high alert and so forth. Hopefully it's the tempest at a teapot. But uh, that's a big issue. The fiscal issue, think about the cities had all the goods you were describing. Lots of things to do, lots of places to do, lots of interaction. Everything, if we had this conversation at the end of February, you and I and everybody else, Richard Florida, would have given chapter and verse on the greats of a city. And the arc of history is pro-city, right? That's true. All that stuff is still true, but... There are no restaurants I can go to. There are no theaters I can go to. There are no ball games I can go to. And, I'm, you know, museums and so forth and so on. And even if I can go, I'm not so comfortable going. Mm-hmm. The schools are still terrible, right? The safety issue is worse than it would have been in February for the cities. Shootings in every city in the country are way up. Um, and you go, hmm. And, and I'm not just talking rich people. I'm talking about people, real human beings. Um, so they still have bad education systems, and now they have more violence, and they have a lot more fiscal stress. Right. And, you, and, and less amenity, and you say, oh, I'm gone. If they didn't have amenity, they don't lose that, but they've lost that for a while. Uh, so that's a challenge. And it's, it's going to hit these places. It's already hitting these places. You see it in rents, in urban versus. You see it in apartments first. And that's because the lease is short. Right. Right? The lease is short. Well, you see Anybody, it, the shortest lease is a hotel, right? Where and you see that, yes. That's yes. the fastest. And maybe and, I'm curious, like – what don't I to do to make this really interesting? Why don't I make a point that I don't necessarily agree with? And you can say whether I'm on the right track or I'm off the right track in terms of where you think, what we're, what we're hearing kind of reverberating in the press. Um, so retail, it's over, over now, right? The, the, the retail sector is, this is a death blow to the retail sector. Um, what was already afoot in terms of the shift of the percentage of U.S. commerce uh, towards e-commerce and away from brick and mortar is now inexorable. Um, all the mall companies, all the major REITs are over levered. Do you agree or disagree with that? Disagree. Uh, bad real estate has always been bad real estate. That bad real estate that died as a result of what happened, the bad retailers that died in the last, they were going to die in the next two years anyway. We're only talking about when they died. If you went through the list, you would have said they were likely to die in the next two years anyway. All All that happened is they all died now. 
They can't die a second time. So one of the beauties of competition, if you go back to your Econ 101 class, one of the beauties is the weak go out of business and the remaining get stronger. And they get stronger because, and retail is the perfect example, those weak centers, those weak retailers were taking away sales that should have been occurring in the stronger centers mm -hmm. and the stronger retailers. When they're gone, they're going to occur more it, it, so. It's a supply-demand shift, right? You, supply demand massive shift. contraction in supply and demand largely remains the same, but it's consumers are going to there's more density, more sales, more commerce, just in fewer centers. So by the way, if I owned the bad retailer, if I owned the bad retail, I was already in trouble. And okay, I didn't get another year or two cash flow, right? That's what really happened. Right. If I own the strong retail, I'm going through the chaos of this moment. But two years from now, what those sales are going to more so occur in the surviving. That is the nature of competition. And I don't think people understand that competition is the winnowing of the weakest to the betterment of the survivors. So, so let me and ask, yes, it'll be fewer, but better. So let me ask another question about then what should the future successful retail landlords be doing. And one of the things that, that seems to be happening, right, and it's certainly something we've been advocating for for a while, is that very much like Netflix, right, where they had a platform, they had a property online, and what they quickly recognized is that to make that a magnet for eyeballs, they needed to own, increasingly own, the content. So they need to have exclusive yes. content on their platform. And they've now gone so far in that direction that they are effectively a studio, right? They, they, yeah. they production they've studio. gone all the way. They've yeah. gone all the way. Do you think that that kind of allegorical tale of what happened to Netflix is what the future of malls will be? Meaning well, the malls are investing David, in David Simon sort of is, is doing selectively that. leaning that way. But it's David's a bit different, right? Because what, what it feels like Simon's doing is it's a bit like Netflix buying a newspaper company, meaning it's, it's a, they're, they're retailers that weren't thriving. It's more defensive protecting leases. I guess what I'm asking is new content, the new and, brands. Okay, so I think the answer is, of course, retail has been nothing for 150 years except finding new ideas to attract. Right. And... What's happened is, for a variety of reasons, the brick guys did a bad job of doing that. Do you think that will last forever any more than any other victory in retail has lasted forever? There's been no victory in retail history that lasts forever. Doesn't mean the format doesn't last, but the... the the invincibility erodes, right? And somebody grows and they innovate around it. So I think your ideas are very good. I'll give you the one that I think, I don't know how to execute what I'm about to say. Um, been doing research and the wealthiest, highest income group in our society is 
the people basically 62 and over. Okay. Now, if you think back to the history of retail, they have been the ignored customer and they've been the ignored customer because as parents, they outsourced a lot of their shopping to their kids, right? And they didn't do it themselves because they were busy. They had jobs, both two earner households. You kids spend the money instead of us. Well, now they're 62 to 80 and there's lots of them. It's the boom. They have more wealth than any, any group has ever had in the history of the world as a cohort and they're healthy. This is the first healthy group of that age. So they're gonna have, over the next 10 to 15 years, they're gonna have more money than anybody else, they're gonna have time on their hands, and they're gonna be healthy. Sign me up if I can figure out how to tap into that as a retailer, right? And I don't know what it is. I know what it isn't. I'll give you an example of what it isn't. Remember how what? Eight years ago, everybody went and restriped their parking lots narrower. I don't. You may as well, but, you, but that was a thing? You may, well, you may as well put a sign up at the front of your shopping center after you restripe narrower parking lot spaces saying, if you're over 55, we don't want you here. Oh, I didn't think about that, but that's a very Because good they can't get out of their cars. Now, you should say they should stay as fit as you, but let's be realistic of the customer. Let's respect what the customer actually is. I'm just giving that as a real trivial example. Right. So how welcoming is it to go to a place where if I park where I'm supposed to park, I can't get out of my car. Right. And if I don't park there, I park a mile away and have to walk, and I'm 40 pounds overweight. That's not very welcoming to your customer. It's just not. So I use that as an example. But if I told you, here is the richest, highest income with time on their hands and healthy group, retailers need to figure that out. And retail real estate needs to figure that out. Uh, because that's where the money, you know, what's the old Willie Sutton? Go where the money is. That's where the money is. Right. And they're comfortable with brick. They yeah. like brick. Now, I don't know exactly what they're going to want. I don't say anybody's got the riddle solved. But I'd be trying to solve that for that end of my shopping center, you know, or for uh, curating my shopping center. By the way, think of something as simple. I walk into a shopping mall, and the music they're playing is, um, I don't know, some rap artist. Who's that going to, who's that going to attract? And who's that going to repel? If I walk in and I'm just being, and what I hear is Beatles music, who's that going to attract? And who's that going to repel? So, so what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, the, 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 the malls need to be more cognizant of this older demographic that in some ways can be re-enfranchised, re-driven to the mall. Think about the senior housing sector. We've been saying the baby boom's aging and is big. That's why you ought to do the senior housing sector for 15, 20 years. And I keep saying, yes, but they're too young for the senior housing sector yet. At the same time, retail has largely ignored them. We have a whole sector that says, yep, we're gonna get there ahead of them. 
and another sector that's still ignoring them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's an oddity. It's a very much oddity. So it will change. Society changes. And, and let's talk about offices, right? So I'll, I'll make the, the, the point that you kind of hear in the press and you can tell me whether you're on board or off board with, with that narrative. So basically COVID shifted everything. The world instantaneously moved to a virtual work environment. There was this overwhelmingly positive response, almost surprise at how productive workers are. People realized, CEOs realized they didn't need to be spending enormous amounts on office space. And so even if some portion of those CEOs get rid of and or downsize their space, the impact of slightly increased vacancy rates in major cities that are so sensitized to this is going to lead to mass bankruptcies of the major real estate owners in urban environments. Do you agree or disagree with that narrative? It's a challenge. The bankruptcy part depends on how fast the economy recovers, how fast the medical comes back. If you told me the medical allows us to come back by late next year, I totally disagree. If you told me it takes five years for the major medical to occur, that's a long time to tread water. You say major medical, what do you mean? uh, Either death, death is off the table. That is to say, I mean, look, people die from the flu, people die from all sorts of things. But um, if there was no risk of death or serious, we would behave differently towards this, including go to the office. I mean, right, we'd go to the office, we'd fly on airplanes, we've flown on airplanes with people with flu, and, and all kinds of stuff, right, over the years. It's the, I'm young, not young, young, I'm 55 and I could die. I don't like that. Right. You know, I just don't like that. If that it's, so it either has to be taken off the table like we did with AIDS, where it wasn't a vaccine, but it was treatments, or it has to be taken off the table by vaccine or some combination. Um, treatments, even being a symbol of keep them on their stomach instead of their back. You know, don't, don't, just because they have low oxygen, don't necessarily put them on a ventilator. All that stuff. The net, the net of all that, if, if, if this is no longer a health crisis where people are sensing existential risk to their own lives, you think that that, that doesn't equate to the narrative I presented. Of- yeah. And here's what, here's what. In fact, I'll tell you a cute little true, actually true anecdote about I don't know, three months ago, I was part of a panel, a virtual panel, and I gave what I'm about to say. And at the end of it, I said, so office will recover, but it's a matter of when, in the way we just talked about. And the next speaker started out by saying, I think Peter is completely wrong. The office is dead because virtual has replaced it. And I'm not joking, with that is screen froze for five minutes. And I said, I think I win. You know, I mean, so if we would have been sitting in a public forum in the traditional way, his screen wouldn't have frozen on him, right? He would have been able to say his point. Here's why I think the office comes back. As I said, most people are not self-driven. Most people are not disciplined. Most people want the social interaction. By the way, university professors and writers don't want it. They're the ones writing all this stuff. 
All, go to a university, all the doors are closed to the faculty. They don't like being around people. You know, is it surprising that they're in their moment now, right? But most people at your office like the fact that others were there on a typical day. They actually look forward to seeing Mary and Tim and John and we interact, you know. They miss that. Second, they miss the discipline. And productivity, as I talk to people casually, 25 to 30% down. And by the way, that means some are way down. And somebody like you is probably down 5%, 3%, you know. Um, the problem is why go to the office right now? Not only the medical. If I want social interaction, how much social interaction am I going to get in most offices when 5 or 10% of the people are coming in? None. So why go in? There's no social interaction. Second, if I'm undisciplined, et cetera, what did I gain by going into an office where nobody is there to keep me focused? Nothing. Third is that office politics. I don't mean Democrat, Republican. I mean, who's getting the plum assignment? Who's getting the great opportunity? What are they saying about me? Right? Office politics, right? Mm -hmm. If nobody is in the office, I don't worry so much about office politics. Now let's say 65% of the workers are back in my company. What are they saying about me? Is Larry getting the plum opportunity? Well, I better go in. And I think there's a tipping point out there. And I don't know where it's at. We're a long way from that tipping point. But I think when you get 65, 70% of the people going in, you get basically everybody coming in, other than the medically challenged. That's a separate, that's a separate group. And let's talk about industrial, right? So we talked about retail. I, I was having a, a conversation with Tyler Henritzi of Blackstone, and he, he gave this really interesting stat. I think I'm going to quote it right, which is that to get a good, any good, and I was using the example of a toothbrush, to a consumer for them to use it through a retail channel, a brick-and-mortar retail channel versus an e-commerce channel, takes a roughly, there's three times as much square footage required in industrial space as there is in retail space. So if you believe in this just growth of e-commerce, um, industrial seems to have a massive tailwind that we are going to be building and using and demanding more and more industrial space. Um, do you so, think that's true? Yeah, and here's the, there's two provisos. Um, again, I think much of what uh, online retail got they were they got in five months what they were going to get in 24 months but they can't get it again i mean sort of once i picked up all the gold there's no more gold to pick up right i can't just magically get it to reappear so they time shifted so you're in a golden moment in a funny sense where industrial in a few spots was getting overbuilt. Then the time shift occurred. What he said is exactly true. You need a lot more industrial space. The absorption is great as a result of that. And by and large, it's good. Here's the two footnotes. One footnote is if you think they gain another 5% next year, and then another 5 and then another 10 and you're fooling yourself. Because one of the things we found out during the downturn, 
during the shutdown, I mean, is there's a whole bunch of things that can't be effectively sold online. If everything could have been effectively sold online, what would have happened? Brick sales would have gone to zero. Online would have taken over 100% of what previous retail had been. That's not what happened. Online took about 5% and retail fell about 20%. And that tells you a lot about the viability of a subsector of brick. You know, it just tells you a lot. In particular, groceries. So they sold groceries online and you know what the reward was? Losing staggering sums of money. They found out what we always thought, which is you can't sell it profitably online. You can sell it online, you just can't do it profitably. Right. And it, it, everybody found that. So that's one footnote, is this time shift is going to make people think it, it's, it, it's the gift that keeps on giving, as opposed to we got this year's Christmas present and next year's Christmas present this year. Right. And, okay, and the second footnote is I keep saying to people, somebody owns those warehouses that were servicing the airports. Somebody owns the warehouses that were servicing the casinos. Somebody owns the warehouses that were servicing Disney World, right? Those retailers who were servicing are in trouble, really trouble. Think of the throughput for a major airport. How much throughput do they need for a major airport anymore? And how many of those retailers that were doing all that need those locations if I've got no throughput. Right. So it is not un there is a downside. Your point right? being which your is point being that obviously owns those. meaning industrial, which people I think intuitively think of as being a supplier and input to e-commerce is also a supplier and an input, industrial real estate I'm talking about a supplier yeah. and input to industries that have been adversely affected, right? Absolutely. So it's not, you're, 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 it's not all positive is kind of what you're saying. Exactly. By the way, I mean, historically, wouldn't you have loved, assuming supply was in any kind of balance, wouldn't you have loved to have had a warehouse serving all the needs of uh, JFK or LaGuardia or O'Hare or Dallas-Fort Worth or go through the list, right? Would you like to own that warehouse right now? Probably not. You know, probably not. So that's the, that's the subtle addition you need there. So the time shift concern uh, and the somebody owns those serving airports and other sectors really hit hard. And so there's so many more sectors, but I'll, I'll probably have to stick with just one given okay. timing constraints. But um, you, I guess maybe you pick between hotels, multifamily, and home building, where do you think you have the most um, contrarian view versus the consensus? Well, I think, I, think, I think on apartments, because on hotels, it's pretty simple. When people feel it's safe to travel, they'll travel. They'll travel. We found that after 9-11, people will travel as long as they feel safe. It may take a while to feel safe. There's a medical dimension. So I think I'm not so contrarian by saying people will eventually travel again. Um, it's just a matter of when, the safety and comfort, right? 
and how much infrastructure gets damaged in the meantime. Apartments, I have a, a slightly nuanced view um, uh, versus the typical narrative, which is it's kind of bulletproof. Um, my narrative goes historically uh, when lots of people don't have jobs, as their leases expire, they move home. And when there's not a lot of jobs available, a lot of kids graduating high school and college don't get a job and they stay home instead of going out and getting an apartment. And in the early period, you sit, you have them under lease, right? And they got unemployment money and so forth. But now what happens as that lease expires each month? And I think there's pressure there, particularly urban in the way we, for the reasons we were discussing. Um, I think there's pressure there, but even ultimately there's a little pressure suburban in that it's just hard to have robust demand in a weak economy, right? In a, and we're hanging in there. The suburbs are basically benefiting because everybody who is going to leave, think of you have a, a, a four-year-old. You are going to leave the city in all likelihood in two or three years anyway, right? As your kid got to school age because they can't educate your kid right? And you can't afford private school. But by the way, as long as the life was good, you were going to stay another year or two. All those people are leaving now, right? Because there's nothing to do, right? There's nothing to do. It's dangerous. It's congested. I have to wear masks, no backyard, da, 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 no, even if I rent, there's no open space. So what you've got again is a time shift. You've got all the people who are going to leave to the suburbs from the city for apartments this year happening, as well as those who are going to leave next year and the year after, all leaving now. So you get this time shift that makes it look like a permanent huge increase. But what you really have is just a time shift. And it will balance back out because once they've left, they've left. They can't leave twice. They can only leave once. If you just think of it as a, like a balance sheet of in and out, and you say, okay, everybody was going to leave next year left this year. It makes this year look really bad. But next year, there's nobody left to leave. Right. And I'm being overly simplistic. So I think urban was overbuilt to start with, right? Apartments. Um, because they overassessed the depth of demand. Um, then you had this, for all the reasons we discussed, that has hit urban even more. Suburban has been helped by that time shift and uh, it's disguising the fact that a weak economy is dampening demand, if you will. Um, and I think eventually that'll show up. Now the question is, do we recover fast enough that whew, by the time you know that move has occurred, we're back to a strong economy um, right. to be seen. Well, Peter, this is always just so interesting to get all of your views on, on these sectors. It's just, again, it feels so long ago that, that we spoke and I feel like so much information is, has come to light. And I feel like we should do this like every six months. And just, I'm like, happy again, to do. Where the I'm world. happy to do. You're a pleasure and uh, thank you for having me. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.
www.fifthwall.com.